Hello, and welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute, and today I'm joined by David Cooney, who's a senior counsel at Whiteford Taylor Preston in Washington, D.C. David is a nationally known bankruptcy attorney who has represented a wide variety of clients in numerous bankruptcy proceedings throughout the United States. David is also a member of ABI's Board of Directors, and last but certainly not least, he's the author of ABI's newest publication titled Retail and Office Bankruptcy, Landlord-Tenant Rights. I'll be talking to David today about his new book, and we'll be asking him to share some practical tips and pieces of wisdom on landlord and tenant rights in bankruptcy. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. So we just published your new book on retail bankruptcy. Uh, this is really the third, revised third edition. What was your goal in writing this? Well, you know, it started out um, a long time ago, back in the 1980s, and I was in a real estate law firm, and my partners would come down the hall, and they would ask me a question about retail bankruptcy. And back in the 80s, I really knew nothing about it. So I started writing down the questions and my answers, and I evolved out of that an outline of about 20 or 30 key questions. And then from that, um, I realized I really had sort of the germ of a little book, and I put that together. Uh, it was originally published by a, uh, a smaller publi publishing house, and then ultimately I'm pleased to say it was picked up by the ABI. I think, um, you know, my goal initially uh, was to write a book for real estate lawyers uh, because I was in a real estate law firm. It wasn't initially uh, intended to be for bankruptcy lawyers. Uh, my view is that what I call the first responders in bankruptcy are not the bankruptcy lawyers. Uh, a real estate developer or a tenant, a landlord, will really call their real estate lawyer first and then they'll come down to my office and they'll say, what does all this mean? And I'll try and translate. But as my outline grew and as my book grew uh, and I became more involved in the ABI, I realized I really needed to combine two things. One. Um, a touch of the academic intellectual nuance that's typical of bankruptcy law, which really is a very nuanced um, discipline. And then I wanted to provide practical advice. I, I didn't want someone uh, to leave the room and say, well, but what do I do? And um, so, you know, we got concerned about what we call takeaways and practical tips. And so I, I guess what I'm hoping, and I think you and I will talk about some of this, you know, talk about macro influences on retail bankruptcy, but then in the language of real estate lawyers, uh, tell them what they do. How do they think about it when their clients call and say, my tenant's about to file, what do I do? How do I, what's on my short list of questions? And, and that really was my goal, and that's what I hope the book achieves. That's great. Now let's start at the top. Um, what are the macro trends you just mentioned? Uh, everyone knows there are a lot of cases, but what is really the big picture? Well, the big picture is very big. Uh, we, are, we are going through, in all components of our society, obviously major changes. And um, I have a theory that uh, Chapter 11 you know, has been renamed by many as Chapter 363, which means we're going from restructuring to sales. And I think, to use a word I don't really love, you know, we're going through kind of a deconstruction of formal Chapter 11. Uh, in fact, I've really wanted to do a talk called The Rise and Fall of Chapter 11. So that's the treetop picture. Uh, what's happening in Chapter 11 is really, I think, a, a natural 
evolution of chapter 11. At first I thought I didn't like this emphasis on 363 sales, but if you think about it, um, commercial bankruptcy is really about what I think of as clearing assets away from failing companies and relocating them in productive, more efficient companies. That's what I call the asset clearing process. When we started, old chapter 11 was really about restructuring the balance sheet and therefore plans of reorganization were far more common. Um, but we're not there anymore. We're about clearing assets quickly and efficiently and the constituents today who favor speed and efficiency now want a fast process and they want a cheap process. And, and that's just the evolution of bankruptcy that reflects you know, sort of the economic macro reality that's, that's in, in the United States today. So we can't, you know, we're not going back to video cassettes and we're not going back to old chapter 11 because, you know, the, the world keeps moving. So that chapter 11 macro effect has affected retail bankruptcy. So today we have a huge amount of not only retail stores but retail inventory that's got to be liquidated. That liquidation really can't be slow. It's got to be fast, even though bankruptcy lawyers, I think by and large, are sometimes uncomfortable with that. But, you know, the investment bankers and those who really pay the freight, that's what, that's what they demand, that's what they want, and I think that's what they're going to get. So let's look at the body count. It's really quite enormous. Uh, according to some numbers, uh, the retail apocalypse closed 7,000 stores and eliminated uh, 50,000 jobs mm -hmm. through 2017. That's really huge. Mm -hmm. Now, if you ask people what was the cause, you know what the first answer is going to be. Amazon. Amazon right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are people who are trying to dig deeper into, but why? why did, Amazon is uh, obviously uh, very price competitive. So why couldn't retail compete? And the people who are trying to answer that um, are all over. There was an article, I was surprised to see, if you read the new edition of Atlantic Magazine, uh, a writer by the name of Bryce Covert has a very amusing, supposedly, article called You Buy It, You Break It. But what he's talking about buying is the retail chain. And he's tried to figure out why can't they compete with Amazon? Uh, and his answer is not surprisingly, they're over-leveraged, and they're over-leveraged because private equity acquired these chains in leveraged buyouts. And he gives some examples. He, he looks at Toys R Us, and really, when you see the numbers, you know, now you can see why, you know, our children are not going to have go to Toys R Us for Christmas. He said, uh, before Toys R Us was purchased, their debt structure was uh, $1.86 billion dollars. But after the LBO closed, it was $5 billion in debt. So this debt load meant that 97% of its profit went for interest, and they had no flexibility. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't fight back. When Amazon came to eat their lunch, they had nothing to resist with. And then oddly, Law 360, a few days ago on July 9th, ran an article called Lawmakers Question Private Equity Firms Over the Toys R Us Collapse. And they've actually written to the private equity owners, and they want to know, you know, what were some of the fees they took out? Why was so mm -hmm. much money drained from these companies? They want to know why the LBO 
took out 5.3 you know, billion in loans and flipped the capital structure from 70% equity and 30% debt to 78% debt and 22% equity. So in a funny way, you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Why do companies go into bankruptcy? Too much debt. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the really big picture as I see it. Well, let's move from big picture to practical advice. Um, given what you see going on, uh, what kind of issues should landlords consider when they think a tenant bankruptcy is imminent? Well, I guess the basic advice that I would give landlords, and I think they should know this, I think the risk of not getting paid rental income is significantly different than it was 10, 15 years ago. And my theory is, and I, th I think I'm seeing this in the case law pretty clearly, all of the code-based protections for landlords are being challenged by sophisticated debtors who have figured out ways to get around them. And they've done very well. I would say uh, the debtors are winning the battle between the, between the, uh, between the tenants and the uh, landlords. So the first practical question, you know, I think a real estate lawyer always asks, look, if, if, if I can get out of the bankruptcy, can I, can I terminate my lease? Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to always think that that was actually a pretty simple question. If you've, if you've got another tenant in the wings and you think you can live without the debtor, then go ahead and do it. Uh, but no one does. And then I used to think, well, but if the code protects you on, and you're going to get your rent during the bankruptcy, then maybe you don't have to worry about the bankruptcy. So you don't have to worry about termination. Uh, but none of, none of that's true anymore. There are no tenants, and you're not going to get paid. So I would say the termination strategy is more important now. Mm -hmm. And um, that leads to two very big issues. One, if you terminate and get paid, like a termination fee, uh, is that going to be set aside by the bankruptcy courts? And, and the answer there uh, is pretty classic standard bankruptcy law. Yes, if you take money, if you're owed a lot of money pre-bankruptcy, the tenant's in arrears, and you ask for a major payment and then terminate the lease, yes, the debtor is going to come after those payments, to which I think we have always said since I've been practicing, so what? Mm -hmm. Take the money mm -hmm. and run. Later, you'll make a deal and you'll be okay. So that really hasn't changed. But the harder issue, and, and this has been the subject of some recent law out of the Seventh Circuit, if you do terminate the lease, will the, will the debtors try to undo that? Will they try to set aside the termination? Now, that would come probably from a creditor's committee. Mm -hmm. uh, you terminate a lease that they think had equity value. It's a long-term lease. It's under market. And, and the creditors committee thinks, you know, we could have sold that lease and made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And we think your pre-bankruptcy termination was a fraudulent conveyance. That's a fairly dramatic theory. And I would say until very recently, I think most courts would have said a lease termination is not a fraudulent conveyance. But Judge Posner from the Seventh Circuit, you know, in... Um, TD Investments 2016 said that it could be a fraudulent transfer. Now, he was not confronted with the 
debtor or the committee actually trying to get the space back. He was only, they were trying to get back a compensation payment of a termination fee. But I do think um, it's now a live issue again, like many things. And I think the, if you do terminate, if you're a real estate lawyer and your client has asked you, can I just terminate this lease? The answer should probably be yes, but there's a preference risk if you, get, if you get money, there's an avoidance risk even if you don't, and then if they ask you, well, should we do it anyway? And I'm not giving legal advice, right. but if I were, I might be tempted to say yes. Mm -hmm. um, so then what do you do? You know, what do you, your, your tenants, Toys R Us, and you see them going down the tubes, you could grab a guarantee. Uh, the problem is they're usually not available, and they're certainly not available from major chains. If you've got a smaller chain and they think they're going to survive, they might give you a guarantee in exchange for some lease restructuring. They might not. I think it's, but if your client is asking, what do I do, and you want a short list, ask for the guarantee. Uh, and then the ultimate most important weapon, ask for a letter of credit. Now, I've talked to landlords about this, and um, I think if you take the letter of credit, I think there's a chance that you can liquidate it and not have those proceeds be considered to be property of the estate. So letters of credit are still a preference risk. Mm -hmm. If you take it within 90 days, they're hard to get, but I still think it's worth asking for. Right. So, so that's all before, that's um, before a tenant files. Right. Um, what can landlords do once a bankruptcy case has been filed? Do they have to worry? You know, we talked a little bit about their being entitled to be paid, but you raised questions with that. Yeah, they do have to worry. I think they have to worry now more than ever. Um, so I usually tell uh, real estate lawyers, break it down into three periods. And you ask yourself, am I going to be paid what's owed until the moment of the filing? Uh, phase two, am I going to be paid between the time the case begins and when the debtor assumes or rejects? And then am I going to be paid for the post-rejection future rent? Uh, and the answer to each of those is different. So here's the way the code says that anything that's owed up to the moment of filing is, a, is an allowed claim, but it's a general unsecured claim. Mm -hmm. And any bankruptcy lawyer knows that means that's one or two cents on the dollar. So the good news is it's allowed, and the bad news is you won't be paid much. Uh, when you get into post-petition rent, now we run into an avalanche of legal issues, and this is where there's an awful lot of manipulation. So the bankruptcy code was initially designed to provide the landlords with, with great protection. And they said that the tenant was obligated to pay rent at the contract rate from the moment the petition was filed until the lease was either assumed or rejected. And so that seemed like an, uh, an unbreakable rule. But, but debtors have found ways to break it. First off, it says that they're obligated to pay, but Congress didn't figure out a way to make money. So, and so many tenants today are administratively insolvent, which means they don't have money even for their post-petition administrative creditors. So all of the priorities that were baked into the code in the mistaken belief that 
debtors would have post-petition funding have turned out to be less true, far less true. So the notion that there's a code protection doesn't really add much in terms of, of real protection. Now the other thing that's happened, in fact I think this was reported in one of the ABI um, bulletins today, the landlord's post-petition claim is a priority claim of some kind, maybe sui generis, but everybody now thinks their claim is priority. So workers in Toys R Us just filed a motion that they want to have their severance pay given a higher priority. They want that to have the same priority as lawyers and other priority claimants. So at the end of the day, you know, we're seeing every, we're, we're, everything's being, um, uh, becoming equal. And as all of these payments become equal and no one is senior, the priority is becoming essentially meaningless. All right, so that's a long way of saying this. Okay, so here's my best advice. If, if you think the debtor's gonna be administratively insolvent and there's dip financing, uh, I would, I've told folks, make sure that the dip financing order has a line item in it for post-petition rent. Mm -hmm. I know that's being done. I think it's being successful in many cases. I don't know the exact number. So just like a carve-out for attorney's mm -hmm. fees, you get a carve-out for rent. Yeah, exactly right. Mm -hmm. And I think, I know the judges have no problem with doing it, and I know there are lawyers who are now savvy, and I think it's fair to tell the court if, if the debtor is not going to be rejecting or assuming our leases for the, the full 210-day period, and there's an obligation to pay rent, that dip financing order ought to have a line mm -hmm. item. And we know one thing for sure, if you don't ask for it, when the case begins, you're not gonna get it mm -hmm. later. So I think that's really one of the best pieces of advice. So, you know, um, what if the debtor is not administratively insolvent? What if there is a little money? Uh, can the landlord now feel that, okay, I'm likely to be paid? And, and the answer is no. <laughs> so why not? Well, because things have been created. You know, debtors have gotten increasingly creative when it comes to keeping their money. So one of the new things is retroactive rejection. It's not new in terms of a, a phrase. It's been around, but its currency has dramatically increased. So now we find that debtors are asking the court to let the, re the, the rejection date effectively be backdated. And if you think about it, if you backdate rejection to the petition date, then there is no period between petition and rejection. The number of days are zero. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. And now there's no post-petition pre-rejection rent. And that concept is being used in varying ways. I mean, sometimes the period is short and sometimes it's zero. But you know, these things happen quickly at the start of the case. They're not always obvious from what's in the motions. They're mm -hmm. long motions. There's a lot of pages to go through. And I think debtors are using the retroactive rejection uh, to their advantage to eliminate that payment. I, I, I actually tend to think, by the way, um, I think that concept is probably not true to the code. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those pragmatic outcomes mm. that the courts have allowed. It certainly doesn't seem equitable. It, um, yeah, it's not. You know, the courts think it is equitable, mm -hmm. but it really depends whose equity. Right. You know, well, I you, guess, yeah. Mm -hmm. That you're trying right. to protect. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, of course, the last thing, and, and everybody is aware of this, but still, uh, it's the billing date rule, which is, you know, when, when is rent due? Right. This is kind of a law school one question. Right. I have a lease. <laughs> it's for the month of September. Right. Is my rent due on September 1 for all of September? Or does it accrue every day during September? Right. Mm -hmm. So if you decide all of the rent is due on the 1st, and the debtor files for bankruptcy on September 2nd, and by the way, they always do, mm -hmm. then there is no rent mm -hmm. that came due post-petition for September. And I've got a colleague of mine in a law firm who calculated that's a free loan from the landlord to the debtors. He said in one case it comes out to 10 or $20 million yeah. of free money. Right. So you put it all together, what do you have? You've got the billing date rule, you've got retroactive rejection. Um, th these are being played out everywhere. Mm -hmm. And my view is I think the bankruptcy judges are, are being tenant debtor friendly mm -hmm. and, they're, and, and they're approving it. So I think that's why, um, that's why I think I tell real estate lawyers, tell your clients the chances of getting paid today in this new environment. Mm -hmm are probably much less mm -hmm. than they were many years ago. You're, you're just being treated like an unsecured creditor. You're, general. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're credit. very unsecured, and your priority is probably not worth nearly as much mm -hmm. as it used to be. Right. So um, why can't landlords and landlords counsel use the appellate courts to fight these things? Well, boy, I wish they could. Um, uh, I love appellate litigation. I would like to handle some of it, but I think they, they can't probably for a bunch of reasons. One. Uh, some of this stuff occurs under Section 363, the sales section, mm -hmm. and it's kind of got a built-in um, mootness doctrine in it as a matter of statutory law. And uh, unless you get a stay of the sale order, your appeal is going to be equitably moot. The other thing is, if some of this stuff, some of the stuff is considered interlocutory, and the the district courts and circuit courts won't even hear it till the case is over and a confirmed plan, and then once it's confirmed, you've got equitable mootness right. that says the plan can't be appealed. So I, I, I tend to think bankruptcy has probably more built-in barriers to appellate work and relief than probably normal civil litigation by far. So you have to fight your battles quickly in the bankruptcy court. If you're looking to the district court and the circuit court, you have a major uphill procedural battle before you even get to the merits. So I think it's very difficult to rely on changing the law. Now, um, if we talk specifically about landlords who have shopping centers, um, and do they have to be concerned about <coughs> assumption and then assignment uh, of tenant leases in a shopping center? I think that's one area where the law has not changed so mm -hmm. much. The, um, if you don't have a shopping center, really we should break the analysis down into two parts. If you don't have a shopping center and your lease has a classic anti-assignment provision, this lease cannot be assigned mm -hmm. without the consent of the landlord, you can forget that. You know, the bankruptcy courts and the code really made it quite clear leases can be assigned notwithstanding an anti-assignment provision, except in the shopping center area mm -hmm. that you mentioned. And there are the courts uh, oddly enough, maybe not so oddly, maybe correctly, have been very attentive 
to the provision that an assignment in a shopping center has got to comply with the lease provisions. And I think one reason for that might be there are a lot of other players involved. You've got leases with um, adjoining stores. They care about who that new mm -hmm. tenant's going to be. You've mm -hmm. got lenders. Mm -hmm. They care. You know, they don't want Macy's to be a food court, <laughs> mm -hmm. although maybe they do these days. So I would say um, if you're a shopping center uh, and you're worried, is my lease likely to be assumed and assigned to somebody that's very detrimental to the creditworthiness of my center, I would say likely not. You can I'd go make your case to the court. I think they will make mm -hmm. their case, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about statu the statutory cap on claims? That's really not a big problem. I think the, um, I'll tell you why, so here's what the statutory cap does. It's really a cap on future rent. Mm -hmm. So in a funny way, everybody used to work, well, am I going to get paid for my future rent? Well, here's the bad news. You're not going to get paid for your current rent. So right. yeah. if you have a long-term lease and you're wondering, am I going to get my 15% of my long? The answer is you might get a claim, but all you're going to be doing is you're going to just be in a long, long line of other claim holders. So I don't see much fighting over the long-term future rent claim. You have that claim. There are some issues about whether it's a term measurement or a time measurement. But in terms of what's hot today in retail bankruptcies, I don't think that's really a burning issue. Mm -hmm. One burning issue I do know of is that the Ninth Circuit issued its decision in Spanish Peaks, um, which held that a landlord, say of a shopping mall, could sell the mall free and clear of leases and not bother to go through the assumption or rejection process. What's your thinking about this issue? Yes, what a crazy case. <laughs> um, you know, when I was a very, very young lawyer, I think when I did my first real estate case, I asked a client, I mean, I asked one of my partners, I said, look, you know, if we have a commercial office building with a lot of below rent leases, why don't we just file chapter 11 and sell the building free and clear? And my uh, colleague laughed and said, you can't do that. And, and I thought you couldn't do that. Right. <laughs> well, and I think I many people thought you couldn't do that. Yeah. I still think you can't. But look, Spanish Peaks is very important. And uh, we do need to worry about it. It comes out of Qualitech, which was many years earlier in the Seventh Circuit. And oddly enough, you know, there's a, um, the Duberstein Mood Court Competition, which I think the ABI is involved in. Mm -hmm. They actually baked in Spanish Peaks to the question. And... Um, I got to coach our, Duber, our Georgetown team, and I was trying to teach law students what assumption and rejection is. And they were having a hard time with that. But anyway, so let's talk about the, um, the so Spanish Peak says, look, you can sell free and clear because in their view, the sale provision, 363, is separate and apart from the assumption and rejection provision mm -hmm. of 365. Uh, and I think the short answer to that is yes, but 365 is the specific section, and it governs and, is, and trumps 363. And I would say, to an almost moral certainty, I believe Congress intended for 365 to always govern assumption and rejection. If you sell free and clear, you are rejecting, and you're really denying the, the, uh, the tenant of the protections of that possessory right that they had that's baked into the code. So I th and Spanish Peaks, and the way they deal with that 
they say, look, if you're a tenant and, and you're not getting the assumption and rejection protections, well, not to worry because you can ask for adequate protection. But nobody's figured out what that is yet. And, and Spanish Peaks, they said, well, it wasn't raised here, but it might mean, and the might is underlined, that you, have a, you can retain your possession. But you know you can't because the buyer of the property is going to say in open court, Your Honor, if the adequate protection is possession, I'm not buying it. I don't it. want it, right. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this issue has come to rest. And I, I think that um, we're going to have ultimately a circuit split, and I would predict in a year or two. I think Spanish Peaks and Qualitech, they're going to have to go back to the Supreme Court. And I think we're going to get a Radlax decision, you know, which dealt with credit bidding. And we thought the uh, court would get into a very complicated, long, esoteric decision. And I think Scalia said, this is an easy case. Mm -hmm. Specific governs the general. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the end of the argument that you could get around the, uh, some of the uh, confirmation standards. So I'm looking forward to that appeal one day. Yeah, well, um, it certainly is an interesting issue, and I know that folks on both sides are paying close attention to it. So, well, David, we've really covered a lot of ground uh, about landlord-tenant uh, laws related to bankruptcy, and thanks so much for all of your hard work um, on the book and for taking time to really share your practical advice. And all of, a lot of this information is in the book. Correct, um, right. So thank you very much. Um, if Those of you who are joining us, uh, if you're interested in purchasing the book, Retail and Office Bankruptcy Landlord-Tenant Rights, please visit the ABI Bookstore at store.abi.org. Um, and so again, thank you, David, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. And from ABI headquarters, thank you for joining us and have a great day.